Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal RX. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello, and welcome to our Optimal RX podcast. My name is Julianne Grant, and I am a practicing naturopath and one third of our Optimal RX technical team. And today I get the great pleasure at interviewing a colleague around one of the, um, well, very interesting topics in my mind's eye, um, all things infections and autoimmune disease. So Kristen Gilmore, welcome. And Kristen is an experienced Melbourne-based naturopathic practitioner with a special interest in the management of immune health chronic inflammatory disorders, and skin conditions. Alongside her long-standing naturopathic practice, Kristen is also a respected researcher, technical writer, and educator for Australian herbal medicine company, Optimal RX. Kristen is also a member of the Naturopaths and Herbalists Association of Australia and has a great love of herbal medicine, which is the focus of much of her research, writing, and lecturing. And Kristen is passionate about health education, whether that's with patients in private consultation or group workshops, via providing educational online resources or through further support and training for naturopathic practitioners, integrative doctors and allied health professionals. With a continued drive to further the reach of our profession, Kristen provides health practitioners with practical and innovative natural medicine strategies based on current research and clinical results. And I can attest to all of that, particularly the furthering of our profession via education and making we all into, <laughs> into good clinical tidbits. So welcome, Kristen. Thank you very much, Julianne. Oh, it's my pleasure. And it's such a great topic. So it's all on infections and autoimmune disease and how that is connected. So this is um, a topic that we've delved into a couple of times with Optimal Irix uh, education, but you have really, really gone the whole hog with this particular topic and your webinar is outstanding. And I really do encourage every practitioner to get a listen, to get a hold of that and listen to it because you outline succinctly every step of infection to autoimmune disease and then forward. So what to look out for going forward with that. So it's not just about discovering the trigger, is it? It's also about discovering ongoing drivers, which I'm sure you'll talk to us more and more about. So what a massive topic. So congratulations on putting that into one um, 60 minute or so lecture. <laughs> well done. But what I'd, I'd really like to get started and dive into this topic, because it is a big one, but the connection between infections and autoimmune disease, as we say, is really fascinating. And, I, and I've got a personal um, interest in it. But considering the wide variety of autoimmune diseases and all of that research that you had to wade through, what on earth made you present on this huge topic? <laughs> That's, uh, you're so kind, Julianne, and you, you're not wrong at all in saying that it is a big topic because I guess even though the correlation between infections and autoimmunity was discovered a number of years ago, you know, more and more research in this area is coming to light and because there are so many possible infectious triggers to discuss and so many varied resulting autoimmune conditions and processes, the, the topic is definitely huge. But in answer to your question, <laughs> my, my personal experience as well really sort of is around autoimmunity. I've, I've got an autoimmune condition myself. And also the types of patients that I, that I commonly see in my clinic really, I guess, sparked me to delve into the, 
the piles and piles of research and try to pull out what was most relevant and useful for practitioners and, you know, um, in the same way for myself so that we can get even better results for these individuals with autoimmune disease because we know it can just be so debilitating and such complex uh, cases and, and complex processes are often involved. So I think because the research definitely indicates, and, and clinically I do find this, that when you investigate, identify and reduce that pathogenic load in patients with autoimmunity, you can sort of work towards a full resolution of the disease. So, and something that I've seen in my own practice, and you definitely have too, Julianne, over the years, is my practice has evolved quite a bit where I'm supporting so many more patients with chronic and stealth infections and, you know, many patients that may have been treated for whatever their autoimmune diseases or their, their diagnosis is, but there's often an underlying infection or, you know, dysbiosis or imbalance that's been overlooked. Really connecting the dots with those patients between infectious triggers um, and the initiation or progression of their condition has been quite invaluable for me and obviously, you know, <laughs> for them too. And, uh, and, and one other thing that drove me to kind of do a little bit more into this because like you said we have done a little bit both on the infectious side of things before as well as the autoimmune and chronic disease side of things before is you know I think I've really noticed much better patient outcomes and I, and I think you'll agree with me here too Julianne since I've been able to use many of the specialized immune and antimicrobial selectively antimicrobial herbs that Optimal Rx have brought to the Australian practitioner practitioner market, particularly in the last five or so years, and, and especially in the realm of, of stealth pathogens and those really difficult to identify and treat infections. So I just feel like there's so much now that we can do and that we can really target with our, with our herbal medicines, which was another reason why I was excited to, to present in this topic and, and try and pull all that together so we've got some solution-based information. And it definitely is solution-based information. Um, and I think you're right. I think we can't just look at uh, infection being one of those triggers for autoimmunity. We tend to think of that, put it in the environmental category and stick it there and leave it there. That started this disease and we'll just move on from that. I find more and more in practice that it's a roadblock to recovery. You know, And whether that's a virus that you've spoken about in your lecture that's a replicating virus or what have you, or whether it's a stealth infection like a mycoplasma even. But um, we don't always get to the bottom of the type of infection, but by, by resolving something that we think it is, we tend to get these shifts or these roadblocks happening just released through our treatment. And, and so I, I think that this webinar is great for every single practitioner because there isn't someone that wouldn't see autoimmunity on some level. You know, so I think understanding this connection is really, really important. And in your webinar, you do spend some time explaining the mechanisms by which uh, infections and dysbiosis can either trigger or exacerbate the autoimmunity. Now, I know that it's a massive topic, but understanding it, has that helped you clinically, do you think? Definitely. And I, I love the term that you used, Julianne, in a previous webinar where you described yourself and myself as path heads because <laughs> we really do love, you know, we just love the pathology. And I know that sometimes, you know, a lot of difficult, heavy, mechanistic biochemical science can be a bit overwhelming and can sometimes 
bog down a practitioner that really just wants to know, okay, you know, what do I give this patient in front of me? But, but I, I find that by really looking to understand the core of what is actually happening to the immune system and why, and when it does encounter an infectious agent or, or a dysbiotic environment in these patients, you know, this information actually guides us significantly in our treatment goals and even more specifically can help us choose the most appropriate herbal medicine or herbal medicine combination for each case. I find it really, really helpful. And I also, for me as well, I think that I really like to see that there is a reason, you know, I try to find the reason behind the dysregulation and the chaos with these patients, because often they are really, they, they present quite in a quite a, a complex manner. And, you know, that's, that's a real naturopathic, basic naturopathic principle there, you know, getting to the root cause of the disease. But, you know, just for me, it's quite comforting to see that our body is often trying to protect us. You know, it's trying to promote our health and keep us alive. And it's, and it's throwing up all these signals for us to interpret so that, so that we can see how best to support it. I guess, for instance, one of the mechanisms that I discuss in the webinar is viral persistence. Like you said, Julianne, you know, some of these chronic shedding, replicating, mutating viral infections like Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus, the antigenic material from these viruses can continually drive an immune response in autoimmunity. So clinically, this is quite helpful to know this mechanism because once we are aware of this, you know, we can start to employ some herbal medicines that target this. So we can look at our multifaceted herbal antivirals that we may otherwise have not reached for. And, you know, we can choose antivirals that have, that also have potent anti-inflammatory and cytokine modulating activity because we know that viral infections can promote an incredible release of inflammatory cytokines. And we can give these to our patient that, that may otherwise just be treated with, say, immunosuppressants. And if, if they were just treated, you know, by, I guess, the resulting, you know, that resulting picture rather than what was potentially driving that picture, then they can end up in a bit of a cycle where, you know, they've got viral activation, which leads to immune stimulation, but is then treated with immune suppression. So then it leads to more viral activation. So I've tried to clearly lay out these different mechanisms in the webinar, and and I hope that it does explain sort of, you know, why and how the body can get out of balance. And then, you know, it points to the direction that we need to take to help it regain balance and also prevent, you know, that further degenerational progression of the condition as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think the key point there is treatment specificity. Because, yeah, like, as you said, if you're, if you're treating the inflammatory symptoms, but you're not getting behind the inflammatory purpose or reason, then we're not probably going to see full resolution for that particular patient. So, and this is why you and I have always really enjoyed delving into the pathophysiology of conditions because we can understand where our treatment lies and what's important and what we need to include and what we don't need to include. You know, for something so complex as autoimmunity, it's just narrowed down. And I think can, practitioners can grab hold of that and, and maybe make their treatments a little bit more specific depending on who they're seeing. The clearance deficiency was one mechanism that you explained in your webinar. It's, and it, you did explain it as being a build-up of apoptotic 
bodies and wastes, which can contribute to that autoimmune activation and exacerbation and induce those pro-inflammatory um, cytokines and environment that you've just mentioned before too. Uh, would this be something to consider in autoimmune patients who are presenting with those sluggish lymphatics? Definitely, yes. That's actually a great question because I think I touch on lymphatics in the webinar, but I don't go into a huge amount of detail. But, you know, if the patient, if the autoimmune patient has signs of lymphatics, of a sluggish lymphatic system, which honestly, most autoimmune patients do. And, and most patients that have, you know, a, an infectious etiology or an inflammatory condition, they will have a bit of, you know, a sluggish con congestive kind of lymphatic system, generally speaking, because there's more waste to get rid of. But, you know, I do especially look for those signs and symptoms that will point me more in the direction of lymphatics. Like, the obvious ones like swollen glands and puffiness and swellings in general and, and holding on to water, but also symptoms that are quite prevalent in our autoimmune conditions like fatigue, skin issues, foggy thinking, foggy brain, you know, those chronic infections like sinus infections can all indicate that our lymphatic system is, is not up to speed and our herbal lymphatics and our alteratives in these cases can, can really be amazing and you know with our lymphatic herbal medicines you know they they really do seem to assist that tissue cleansing action of the lymphatic system which is why they were traditionally used in those you know infective inflammatory conditions and and i i guess the old term for it was you know blood purifiers and things like that because you know we know that the blood feeds the lymph so it's just, yeah, I do think that they're, they're very important. I also do use immunomodulators and anti-inflammatories. Of course, they can help a lot when there are these defects in the clearance of apoptotic cells. And this is very, very common, by the way, in, in lupus, systemic lupus erythematosus, mm -hmm. SLE, because we also need better working macrophages and, and a more, you know, um, efficient immune system too so but yeah if there's a lot of debris a lot of garbage hanging around we can definitely benefit by supporting our cleansing draining waste disposal system and getting that garbage away from our cells and tissues and organs yeah and and hugely important in a lot of conditions but specifically here with what we're talking about that clearance deficiency um so you've mentioned the depurities or lymphatics what's your favorite we have to ask <laughs> in these particular patients, what's in autoimmune patients, what is your favourite ones, that uh, phytomedicines that you reach for? Well, I'll try and be, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I, I have to say, I have to say red root. I mean, it's both of our favourite lymphatics and it's, and it's probably my favourite lymphatic of all time, but, but it is very specific in these types of patients as well. I do also reach a lot for cleavers and poke root, but um, generally speaking, red root, uh, which is also called um, Ceanothus americanus, um, is just perfect because really it's it's a potent, strong lymphatic and a spleen tonic. So it you know it's quite unique in that combination of activity, but it's also gentle. And when I say gentle, I mean that it's quite safe. So you can use it in a diverse range of vulnerable populations. So whether that's children or you know people that have been quite sick, red root is still you know highly appropriate. It also, uh, you know, acts as a bit of a synergist, so it can help move other herbal medicines that it's paired with to the liver, which can further increase, you know, detoxification and, and things like that. But it's also great when you've got 
an infection that maybe uh, you know, you've got a hepatitis infection that might be a driver here, or perhaps you've got autoimmune liver disease or an autoimmune condition that, that affects the liver as well. So red root is, is great. And it's just, it's the best. Any, anywhere there's congestion, slug, sluggishness. I sometimes use it as part of a gargle for tonsillitis or throat infections. I think it's really good for that. I got that little tip from reading how another herbalist used it and tried it out with a few kids and it was, and it's really, really good. So, you know, it's, it's got a lot of benefits. It tends to kind of sit more with its affinity in the, in the lower half of the body. Like you could use it as a great pelvic decongestion, um, you know, where you've got, uh, you know, in conditions like PCOS and stuff like that, it's really good, but it's also very generalized. So yeah, I I could keep talking, but I'll I'll try and wrap that up. So red root, great tip about the gargle. I actually hadn't thought of using red root as a gargle. You know, that's mix it with isatis or something on a sore throat might be really nice. Hey, that's definitely because it's got a bit of um, it's got a bit of mucous membrane tonic and astringency to it, like just a little bit. So it's quite, it feels quite nice as well. Yeah, yeah, good tip. I'll take that one away. (laughs) Thank you. And just with your webinar, you specifically covered those uh, infectious triggers of autoimmune disease. But what type of triggers do you tend to see clinically? Yes. Okay. So I, I do kind of stick with the infectious and, um, mm. you know, uh, dysregulations of the microbiota triggers in the webinar, but in clinic, I see a lot of, a lot of different triggers. And I often see patients where a couple have, tr- a couple of triggers have compounded. And this is particularly for progression of a condition or when there's an exacerbation of a condition, often it's a, you know, one plus two plus three equals, you know, boom sort of thing. So other triggers might be stress is a huge one and it is for nearly any condition. Food sensitivities and food allergies are also really big and impaired gut health in general. Toxic uh, exposure, like chemical exposure, certain medications, like even prescription medications and um, sometimes even vaccinations can be triggering. Also hormonal imbalances or where there's been a shift in hormones can be a trigger. So whether that's, you know, going through puberty or menopause or something like that, or after someone's become pregnant or or had a baby, you know, they can all be triggers. So all of these type of triggering factors I see in clinic can drive disease activity. And actually, in fact, I had a patient yesterday who poor thing had is a great example of this. She had a few triggers compound and give her a bit of a flare. She's a long-term patient of mine who um, has psoriasis and she's actually, she had been in remission for quite a while and she was doing really well, but this current COVID-19 world that we're living in, she'd been under quite a bit of stress homeschooling her two kids. And she also, you know, during this time came down with a bit of a sore throat and now she got it checked out and it, it was actually a strep streptococcal infection, which I do talk about in the webinar being a really big, significant trigger for psoriasis, particularly gut psoriasis. And on top of that, she's also been, you know, cleaning up a lot, um, not only after the kids, but (laughs) the husband's doing a few uh, home renovations. So she's been using turpentine and things to clean up paints and, you know, all of that, that's stress, infection, chemical exposure, all put together. And she came to see me yesterday and she'd broken out in gut psoriasis on her stomach and her lower back. So in her herbal prescription, we are aiming to address all of these factors. And as part of her 
diet and lifestyle recommendations, we're trying to reduce any further triggers or exposure to triggers because I do think that's really important. When you've got this big load, you know, you've got to look at those other areas and make sure there's nothing else compounding. So we're keeping her diet really clean, you know, looking to, you know, get her off me from the chemicals in the house and 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 do, doing what we can to reduce her stress. So, mm. And, yeah, autoimmune is that perfect storm, isn't it? Like, <laughs> you know, it's never, oh, you had that infection and you're done. Like, and that's the cause. It's... um it's understanding what that perfect storm is and then each relevant component for that particular person. You know, I think in these times at the moment, it is tough. There's a lot of people under stress and stress might be a significant factor for many people at the moment. But that was a really great example, Kristen, around what can come together to cause a flare (laughs) or to trigger an actual autoimmune disease start, you know? So we've, with that, you did mention a particular infection with regard to psoriasis or eczema. Can, and in the webinar, you do go through that quite well and quite thoroughly. Are you able to give us a little taste perhaps of um, those common infections or just a few infections that are linked to different autoimmune diseases? I certainly can. And, you know, I do, like you said, I, in the webinar, I do go through this in in quite a bit more detail and every condition that I cover, I try to give a list, like a full list of what's seen in the research and clinically, you know, in in clinical cases of the common and possible infections that can be implicated as triggers, um, as well as the current research around the microbiota makeup and any alterations in that, that can impact the conditions. So, yeah, it's just my disclaimer that this really is just a taste. Um, but uh, besides, you know, streptococcal throat infections triggering psoriasis in rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis and a few other autoimmune diseases, actually, periodontal, periodontal pathogens, so oral bacterial infections, like now I'm going to have trouble pr- pronouncing this. I really tried to avoid it in the webinar. <laughs> Porphyromonas gingivalis, and I'm going to stop there, but a, a number of um, bacterial infections that I can't <laughs> pronounce are really common triggers to be aware of. And oral health is a huge issue and highly linked to, to both rheumatoid arthritis and also ankylosing spondylitis. In ankylosing spondylitis, Klebsiella pneumoniae is also a significant opportunistic gut pathogen that's, that's commonly implicated. And I know that we've spoken about this before. I think, Julianne, you mentioned it in your webinar from a few years ago on chronic disease. And uh, interestingly, in type 1 diabetes, I had no idea that there were so many viral infectious triggers that could be potentially, you know, uh, driving type 1 diabetes. So particularly enteroviruses and especially the Coxsackie B serotypes could be potential triggers because these enteroviruses they think might be involved in destroying beta cells and that can either be directly by, you know, directly killing them or indirectly by creating this extreme inflammatory response in the area where the islets are. And really stealth and and chronic viral infections can be an issue for nearly all um, autoimmune diseases. So it's about, you know, taking that case history and assessing that for your patient. But those viral infection, infections that I mentioned earlier, like Epstein-Barr virus and cytomegalovirus, they're implicated as possible triggers for numerous conditions like multiple sclerosis, they're implicated in lupus, in rheumatoid arthritis, in type 1 diabetes, and, and, and in lots of others. And actually in multiple sclerosis, which is quite interesting, 
the exacerbation of MS or the or MS relapse has been really closely linked to certain respiratory tract infections like the rhinovirus and um, influenza viruses, but also even, you know, coronaviruses and adenoviruses and respiratory syncytial virus, you know, those respiratory viral infections. So that can also be a bit of a link there. So something to be aware of. What else do I talk about? In uh, inflammatory bowel disease, you've got a number of gastrointestinal infections that can be triggering for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, which makes you know total sense because that's the area of impact. And then even in autoimmune thyroid conditions, there are potential triggers, infectious triggers like Yersinia species for Graves' disease, as well as stealth infections and persistent viral infections, which can also be triggering factors for both Graves' disease and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So, and now, you know, I probably don't need to do this here, but Julianne, you cover the microbiota, you know, composition so beautifully in your webinar. And I was really excited because it complemented my lecture so well, because I felt like it really informed and, and, and gave such a better understanding to my slides, which outline the observed alterations of the microbiota for each of the conditions. So I do spend a bit of time in the webinar pointing out things like, you know, whether there's a lack of diversity of species, um, whether there's an imbalance of the ratio of firmicutes and bacterioidetes and which way that imbalance goes and lots of other dysbiotic findings for each condition. So I guess you'll have to listen to the webinar if you want to know more <laughs> and get those notes. Yeah. But that, but you true. Um, that is one of the, obviously because of how I treat, I suppose, and investigate that I found those lists of um, dysbiotic list, if you like to say. Um, and also you list, you mentioned other factors that might be contributing to their poor gut diversity or their microbiome issues, such as zonulin levels or um, short chain fatty acid levels or producing bacteria and things like that. So you actually did go into quite a bit of, um, research regarding that so people can use that information and marry it up with a stool test for example you know or just have it as an issue thinking wow that's that's a condition that really does um, demonstrate low diversity or low richness you know and, and and helps form treatment so that is that is fascinating the other part to everything you've just you've just mentioned is understanding that the autoimmune disease is not just the organ of that autoimmune disease you know, um, I think that's also fascinating when we're looking at ongoing triggers or what's keeping this disease alive. So the oral microbiome, for, for instance, um, you talk a bit about that throughout the webinar and I'm appreciative of that because I think that's a reminder for us to say to our patients, hey, go to the dentist regularly, you know, floss regularly. Here's a mouthwash I want you to use regularly. You know, I think that's really important. But the other really interesting, I guess, infections that trigger different or exacerbate certain autoimmune conditions like you just mentioned respiratory um, viruses or infections and ms flares so if we are to specifically talk about that because ms is quite um, significant in our population if we think what sort of herbal medicines would you be thinking about using for those respiratory infections and to support the patients i'm um, sorry support the lungs in those patients of ms yeah definitely so you know i do have a lot of favorite lung protecting and, and lung strengthening herbs that, that I often use either in an acute lung infection, you know, or as a preventative as well, if I want to just protect that organ where I know that, for instance, like you said, in MS patients where that it might be a vulnerable time for them, it might be winter time and, and you really do need to make sure that, well, we know this is a potential trigger, let's bolster this organ and try and prevent 
this trigger from occurring. So, I mean, if, if I'm thinking of lung herbs, I often use thyme, licorice, lamartium, definitely. I mean, lamartium is known as the king of the lung herbs, so how could I avoid it? We know that it's specific for viral respiratory infections, so I will definitely include lamartium in if there is an, an acute um, infection for sure, or also bermarigold, which is a, another great lung herb and mucous membrane tonic. So, you know, really sort of toning up and protecting that area. And it's also, you know, a systemic uh, antimicrobial as well. So it, it can do a few things there. But also, I really like cordyceps. I like using cordyceps as a lung herb and an immunomodulator as a preventative as well. So, you know, if I want to protect that organ but i but i'm looking to you know use a microbiota modulator because i've got a bit of dysbiosis or i want to support their immune system and and reduce the inflammation in this patient then cordyceps ticks all those boxes elecampane i love i really love elecampane i use it a lot uh i also like pleurisy root i use that a fair bit and it's a really nice low dosing herb that fits nicely in a mix but yeah, I guess, like I said, I'll often want to reach for herbs that tick a few boxes that, I, that I'm looking to address. So, you know, if there is, if, if there perhaps, I'm trying to think of, of an example, but for instance, if I'm looking at something like Bacal Skullcap, you know, Bacal Skullcap is a strong antiviral. It's broadly acting. It's potently anti-inflammatory as, as herbalists know. So it's great for reducing that excess inflammation that you see in an autoimmune condition and you see even more so in a viral infection, but it's also really neuroprotective. So in, you know, MS patients, it, it really ticks a number of boxes. You could sort of say the same thing about green tea. Green tea is another one that ticks a lot of those boxes being strongly neuroprotective and also immunomodulatory and, and anti-inflammatory and antioxidant too. So I think that's probably too many herbs, but I do. Um, if you just remember one, think Lamartium. That's probably the most specific. <laughs> I think you're right. No, that, it's actually a great answer because it also shows how many herbs we have in our toolbox, right, for, for certain organs and certain conditions. So, no, that's fantastic. And I love Bakel as well. So thank you. Okay, so great. So in your something else I'm um, interested about is how do we get to the bottom of working out what's going on with these patients so in your webinar you outline the importance of assessing for infections uh, via case history and testing can you tell us what kinds of questions you ask and what kind of tests that you might commonly ask your patients to do okay yep so i think that um you know most most practitioners have they're sort of, you know, the tests that they love and the, and the questions that they like to ask. And I think you cover this really well in your, your webinar on phytomedicines for the microbiota, as well as the podcast relevant to that, because I always make sure to ask a lot of questions that give me an indication of um, what the balance of the microbiota might be, the health might be. So, you know, asking those questions about their birth story, whether they were breastfed, if they had pets growing up, do they have pets now, the general hygiene kind of questions, um, their travel history is very important, you know, any overseas infections, any major infections that they had in the past because they might not think of those at the time when they're seeing you. Uh, I always check if they've had, you know, their tonsils out or their appendix out, anything like that can be a big clue. And the usual lifestyle questions, you know, around smoking and, and diet and stress and, and drug use, and especially actually their history of use of 
pharmaceutical medications as well as their current use because we know drugs, you know, particularly ones like protein pump inhibitors and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and chemotherapy drugs and antibiotics, which these patients have often been on or are on, um, can have quite a negative impact on the makeup of the gut flora. And I also ask about the patient's immediate family and their history because sometimes that can give me some clues because you can, you know, you can something that's found in, in a family member could have been passed to their patient or they could have had a similar exposure. So really in my autoimmune disease patients, I try to pay very, very close attention to anything that leads to that infamous line. You know, I've never been well since X, you know, I've, you know, this, this thing really set my life on a different course because I think that will really point us in the right direction. And in regard to ordering tests and testing, I recommend further testing in all of my autoimmune disease patients. Um, I think it's really important. And, and often they can do this through their own GP, their own general practitioner. But I do order specialised tests when we need to or when the GP can't get something bulk billed. So generally, most of my patients will already come in with a full blood test and I'll specifically look at, um, you know, inflammatory markers and so on. And, and I do, I have noticed that when you see a lot of um, markers of inflammation in their tests. But when you take their history and it seems like they're doing everything right, that this can often be a bit of a marker of, you know, maybe there is a stealth infection. Maybe there's something like that driving that inflammation. And, uh, you know, because viral infections are so commonly an issue, I'll often do viral titers, especially for those really common, uh, commonly implicated viral infections like Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus or the herpes viruses, or really whatever viral infection might be implicated when you you look at your patient history and you look at the condition they have. So the webinar um, will help point you in the right direction there. And, you know, sometimes I do this with the GP or sometimes I'll do it with a functional pathology lab. And I do often also request a stool test where um, we can, and, you know, to try and map out the gut microbiota and look for imbalances and infections. And, and I may also do food intolerance testing as well to see if there's any other hidden drivers adding to the picture. So they're the main sort of tests that I'll, that I'll do and the questions that I'll ask. Mm. And there's, there's often layers to that, though, isn't there, Kristen? It's sort of not, okay, here's my first appointment and I'd like you to get this, <laughs> this done, please, and, and hand over your bank balance. It's kind of, it's not really done like that, is it? I think when you're mentioning these tests, you're most likely talking about it in a consequence kind of, you know, or sequential manner. And again, before, I think it raises the issue of roadblocks and just trying to get to, of healing, just trying to get to what is that roadblock and can I investigate it? Um, and I appreciate that. And I think, you know, just the basics are like asking the right questions is often mind-blowing pieces of information for that particular person. And often I find that patients don't remember, you know, until you actually point out, did you have this or have you had that? Um, has your mum had this or your dad had that? You know, I think that that sort of leads us to some more specific um, treatment as well or, or idea of what's going on with them. I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. yeah. We were talking before about the oral microbiome and how dysbiosis there or periodontitis can be a triggering factor for quite a few autoimmune disorders or diseases. And we talked about flossing being something, and I know you talk about it in your webinar, being something that, that is 
an easy thing for us to do to help eradicate any bacterial loads there. Uh, what about store-bought mouthwash as an example? <laughs> is that something that we could uh, support our oral microbiome with or is it something we shouldn't be doing? That's, that's a very uh, interesting and controversial question. Um, I do, uh, I tend to recommend no. I recommend not to use store-bought mouthwash. I, I, it's actually a very pertinent question, Julianne, because I was just reading a, a 2020 clinical trial where they found that uh, one of the commonly used mouthwash, but it was actually a, a chlorhexidine one, so not, you know, not a Listerine or anything like that. It was found to make the saliva of the patients significantly more acidic and negatively change the composition of the microbiota. So, you know, this was a seven day study. And in that time, you know, you could see how it could damage teeth and the oral mucosa. So that was a big, oh, that's a really scary kind of study. And, you know, some of the other common supermarket mouthwashes, they've got benzoic acid and all sorts of rubbish in them. So I wouldn't really recommend using these. And in fact, I would often recommend instead uh, to use herbal mouthwashes. You know, I, I might make one up or depending on what's in their, their normal herbal mix, I'll get them to swish that around their mouth before swallowing, you know, and I, and I know you do the same thing too, Julianne. We've, we've both prescribed herbal mouthwashes and found them to be really effective. So I, I really think there's no need for going to the, the store-bought stuff and we've got such great herbs you know like green tea is just phenomenal you know there's clinical trials around it showing its efficacy pomegranate also has clinical trials around it showing its efficacy in you know oral health so and they're both selectively acting you know quite potent antimicrobials as well so you know cloves another good one so there's lots we can choose from and i and i think that you know i really you know, besides all that general advice that we were talking about, like flossing and, and making sure you're seeing your dentist and that good oral hygiene, you know, I, I will sort of, if the, if the patient does have one of those conditions where this is a really strong link, you know, whether that's RA or, or enclosing, I'll make sure that I target my questioning around that too. So, you know, I'll either have a look or I'll ask them, you know, do, do you get um, swollen gums or puffy gums or do they ever bleed or do they feel tender? You know, is there is there blood when you floss, or you know, when you brush your teeth, or you know, do you, do you have, do, yeah, do you floss? Do you have bad breath? Sometimes you don't need to ask them that, and you'll know very well whether or not they have bad breath. But you know, if their gums are bright red or they're they're pussy, which is quite extreme, but you know, these are all signs that could point to periodontitis. So, yeah, you know, you, you, it kind of gives you a little bit more of a direction, like you said, of of where to go next and and how full on you need to be with your recommendations of, of mouthwash and things like that too. Yeah, I think, um, and you've mentioned some wonderful herbal medicines that we can use as gargles or mouthwashes. So green tea has a heap of clinical trials around its use as a mouthwash um, in reducing the symptoms and, and bacterial load, I guess, pathogenic load that's contributing to periodontitis. So clove is beautiful. Um, and just a reminder to steer clear from... Um, turmeric and berberine containing plants <laughs> as best you can so that your patients are happy to go out in public and smile uh, showing That's, their teeth. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Julianne. <laughs> that would have been a hilarious result. <laughs> That's right. We forget sometimes. We think that's an efficacious herb right there. I'm going to give that to that patient and phone call a little while later is not too happy. But anyway, we'll remember, <laughs> remember that. But I just want to go into treatment a little bit more around herbal medicine. 
and specifically the classes of herbal medicines that you use to manage autoimmune disease, particularly when there's an infectious component, what do you tend to reach for? Yes. Okay. So, and this is covered quite a bit, not only in the webinar, but in our support materials that come with the webinar as well. So, you know, generally speaking, when you're seeing an autoimmune patient, you are going to be looking at your herbal immunomodulators. So this isn't something particularly new, but when there's an infectious component, you just have to be mindful of, okay, what is the patient's current state of immunity? So, you know, if, if they're in an autoimmune flare, I will sort of choose something that's a little bit more suppressive. So like a hemidesmus that is more specifically modulating to that suppressive side of the immune system and can bring that inflammation, that excess response down. But, you know, if it's, if it's a viral infection, you know, or, or a, um, you know, where that immune system's being stimulated chronically, you know, I might use an immunomodulator that has an antiviral edge or has a, um, you know, anti-inflammatory edge or something like that. And then, you know, of course, that's the thing. If there's an infectious component, how are we going to deal with this? So we can support our immune system to work better, but we also want to use our, our you know, relevant antimicrobials to, to target that pathogenic infection or that pathogenic load. So we can use our, our antimicrobials, our synergists, you know, and our microbiota modulators. So these are the herbs that do support the diversity and the growth of beneficial bacteria. So when you've got an overall imbalance or, you know, a decrease in diversity and, it, and which nearly every single autoimmune condition that I looked into had consistent findings showing reduced diversity of the microbiota, which I'm sure is no surprise at all to you, yeah. Julianne. <laughs> So, you know, we can use these herbs to help kind of, you know, bolster that, you know, that, that gut microbiota, that oral microbiota, or even in the lungs or wherever the dysbiosis is, which also leads me to talk about our organ protective plants. And I mean, this, this sort of goes without saying when you, when you're treating a condition and we know that with our autoimmune conditions, we've got ones that are a little bit more systemic, you know, they affect lots of organs or types of tissue at once. And then we've got our um, autoimmune conditions that are a bit more limited to one type of tissue or one organ. So, you know, we need to protect and to support the organ or the, or the system or the type of tissue that's not just being impacted by the autoimmune response, but also wherever the infection is. So, you know, if we've, you know, just to take psoriasis as, as an example, if they've got recurrent tonsillitis or these throat infections, these strep throat infections, we've got to pick herbs that protect that area that uh, have an affinity for that area not just our systemically acting herbs that are going to get to the skin as well so you know and same thing with the, that uh, multiple sclerosis example before we want our organ protective herbs for our lungs to protect against respiratory infections even though you know we also want to protect the nervous system because that's getting the brunt of a lot of the effect that's really important. Using herbal medicines um, that support our elimination pathways. So we already spoke about lymphatics and ulcerative's there, and of course, anti-inflammatories and antioxidants go go without saying. But I, I tend to, you know, w with our plants, obviously they do more than one thing, and and you'll choose your antioxidant or your anti-inflammatory that is specific for that condition or that person or that infection. So you can, you know, it's not one herb from each class it's sort of you know one herb will cover a number of classes and you might have two or three herbs in a mix that tick you know that that are all immunomodulating but have these other complementary actions so it just depends 
And one other class of herbal medicines that I, I mentioned in the webinar because, you know, I just think it's so important. There's such a strong correlation and, and interaction between the nervous system and the immune system. So I do talk about, you know, thinking about our adaptogens and our nervines to um, support the patient's response to stress and, and reduce the burden on their stress response system. So, you know, by doing this, we'll be able to balance their immune response and, you know, support their current state of nervous system reactivity and, and energy and mood and all that kind of stuff as well. So they're the main yeah. classes. Yeah, there's quite a few. But I think we can get caught up in worrying about how we fit that in one bottle. And often we don't. You know, often there's a, an immune component bottle and there's a, an adaptogen nervous system bottle, you know, that can sometimes be what, what stays chronically there as a treatment. And then what I'm noticing is I'm tweaking the immune type bottle and that seems to work well for my practice. But I appreciate that, Kristen, because there are, there are a lot of herbal medicines. When you just stop and think of the classes, you, you can get a bit overwhelmed. But, you know, one herb such as cordyceps can be an adaptogen, an immune modulator and an in, um, a potent anti-inflammatory so I'm covering all those bases right there you know and an organ protective herb for the kidneys and lungs and things so you know I think it's worth understanding your herbal medicine and where that specifically lies and also not being afraid to give people two lots of herbal medicines you know we mm. don't have to get one bottle yeah and you, you briefly touched on this at the start there when you were talking about immunomodulators but during a flare you've talked about the use of hemidesmus is that the only immunomodulator you're using or are you thinking about using others that's a good question actually so i i think during a flare i i do use other herbal medicines like i often have used romania and turmeric and those kind of herbal medicines but i, I tend to sort of i'll stick with those immunomodulators that are less stimulating in their modulatory activity if that kind of makes sense and i think for people who aren't herbalists this is a little bit more difficult yeah. to understand but you know our, our plants have such i guess innate intelligence and complexity to them that that we can sort of simplify our treatments a little bit so you know a modulator will balance the immune system either way but there are nuances to that so in a in a flare i tend to sort of focus more on the, you know, the inflammation that's, that's happening and to try and bring that immune response down a bit because we don't want to exacerbate the patient any more than they already are. And then in between flares is when I'll come in with more immune support and um, more, more of that immune modulating uh, on that supportive sort of side of things. So, I mean, yeah, I think, I guess it's a, a case by case, sort of thing but i do i do think it's important to 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 move your focus a little bit during a flare because the last thing you want to do is make someone worse so definitely yeah, hemidesmus turmeric they're the ones that i go to all the time great and you might be steering clear of um a couple of herbs like i know you mentioned in your webinar such as cat's claw and echinacea and things like that that have shown mixed results in autoimmunity during a flare yeah yeah so that's that's a good thing to remember i thought you summed that up really well Another question we often get to here um, at Optimal RX is the cautions around immunomodulators and immunosuppressants. Do you have any advice on that level or any tips around co-prescribing? That is actually a really good question because, like you said, we do get a lot of questions around this and, and people sort of really want the go-ahead, you know, can I use this and how much and, and when and, and that kind of thing. And and some of these um, autoimmune patients, if, if they're quite unwell, they will come in on 
an immunosuppressant drug. So, I mean, firstly, you just, you have to make sure that you're checking the safety of any herbal medicine you're prescribing alongside any other medication, whether that's immunosuppressive or, or otherwise, but with the immunosuppressive drugs, often you'll find that there'll be a theoretical interaction um, to be aware of because you know, we're using immunomodulators. So there's been research showing that the, the herbal medicine you're giving supports the immune system in some way and in some situations, while the, the medication that they're on, you know, has been given to suppress the immune system in some way. So I'll only co-prescribe immunomodulators with medical, you know, pharmaceutical immunosuppressants where the herbs have shown some clinical safety alongside, you know, as a co-prescription. So, and I, and I'll always make sure that I'm communicating what I'm giving my patients with their other specialists or their GP or whoever else is looking after them. So it's a, you know, the whole team is across what's going on. So we can all monitor the patient because that is the other big thing. You know, you've got to monitor the patient's response and, you know, the, the GP or the specialist, they might want to tweak what they're giving them as well. So it's good to have that flow of communication and, I will say that uh, the medicinal mushrooms, generally my first point of call for this kind of co-prescription because both cordyceps and reishi as examples have some clinical trial safety in this area. So it just depends on the medication. So mm. yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a case by case and, and the practitioner's responsibility to do a little bit, just a little bit of research to see you know, what's, what's safe and what's appropriate. And check the interactions at the end of the day make sure yeah. that it's okay. But I think there's a place there, like you just said, that's really good. Mm. So if we come down to our, our questions, our favourite questions for everyone we interview, what are your favourite herbal medicines in uh, the classes that we have just spoken about? There's, there's quite, yeah. a, quite a lot, even if we narrowed it down to a modulator with an anti-inflammatory edge or, you know, that type of, that would be fantastic to get your idea or an immunomodulator with an infectious edge, you know, maybe something along the lines of that. I love what you're trying to do for me here, Julia. <laughs> trying to make it so much easier. I shouldn't have gone through so many herbal medicine classes. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, like you said, it does depend on the infection and the, and the condition and, and all of that kind of thing. But I just popped into my mind, um, you know, there are a couple of specific favourites that I have in certain cases, like, you know, if I'm looking to prescribe an anti-inflammatory, antioxidant herb in inflammatory bowel disease so particularly in you know ulcerative colitis and they've got a pathogenic infection so I want an antimicrobial as well I will I will definitely reach for wormwood so artemisia absinthium because we know you know clinical trials have shown it's it's it can reduce that and block that tumor necrosis factor alpha in those patients so that's really good but you know if I'm if I want a oh, I'm trying to think if I want an anti-inflammatory that has, and I'm dealing with a systemic, you know, or a chronic viral infection. So it's triggering a lot of that inflammatory cytokine activity, then I'll probably reach for some harder hitting cytokine storm inhibitors. And I love cordyceps, bacon, skullcap, licorice, danshan or donkai, depending. So yeah, I do love, I will have to say though, I really do love Romania and, particularly in combination with turmeric for rheumatoid arthritis. I think, I don't know if it's just in my clinical experience, I found that it just tends to work so well and it, and it has these kind of, you know, it's a great adrenal tonic and, and it's got some immunomodulator activity. But in RA patients, I think it just, 
it just seems to really synergize the whole mix. And, you know, if you do have in an RA patient, if you do have some of that oral, you know, infectious triggering going on, I will often use green tea. Green tea is a favorite there because not only, you know, is, does it have all those benefits in the mouth, like we said, and it's selectively antimicrobial, it's also a potent antioxidant and it's been shown to normalize the oxidant antioxidant system and reduce inflammation in RA animal studies. So it's, it's quite specific for RA as well. If I just think of, I guess, my favourite key immunomodulators for autoimmune disease, just to try and make it a little bit yeah, let's more specific. Do yeah. yeah. I love astragalus. I really love astragalus. I love cordyceps. I love the medicinal mushrooms and, and the, those polysaccharide-rich herbs. Oh, I love licorice. And I, mm, I don't know, a favourite. It's really hard. I lo- okay, if I have to pick one favourite, okay. maybe reishi, maybe reishi. I think in these patients, it's very, very good. It covers, you could give it to anyone in this category. Now I'm done. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. It is still useful though, right? You know, we want to have a couple on our shelf from each category. So I take all that information on board. That's excellent. Um, And we're just, we're coming towards the pointy end of our podcast now. So we're trying to pull all of this information together and give it, give, provide our listeners with possibly some clinical keys that you find really useful in practice with autoimmune disease patients. Um, What would you like to share with us today? (laughs) Okay. I think, I think one of the key things that, that I just want to emphasize and I, and I know we've sort of already touched on it, but you know, like you said, Julianne, with these patients, we want to avoid regression. We want to, you know, get through some of those roadblocks and we know that these infectious triggers, they can be secondary triggers. So they can be these exacerbating factors. And so one of my sort of clinical keys is just making sure that we educate and we equip our patients to deal with any acute infection. So new infections when they arise. So, you know, often we're looking in the past, we're looking in the, in the patient history to see what could have triggered it. But, you know, moving forward, we also want to make sure that you know, if, if our if our patient um, comes down with a, with even just a cold or, you know, uh, um, it might be a little bit more significant than that, but that they come straight to us and they know what, you know, they know what they've got to do to get on top of this to mitigate and minimise any, you know, exacerbation or damage that that could lead to. Because these are, you know, these are generally immune dysregulated patients. So we want to make sure that we're, we're equipping them appropriately in that regard. And, um, and I guess the other clinical key just to be aware of, which we've already spoken about, is just, you know, considering pharmaceutical prescriptions that they're on. So, you know, whether they're for their autoimmune condition and, you know, we want to check the safety for co-prescribing, but also just, you know, addressing the side effects of that prescription in itself. So, you know, like I said, these, these prescriptions can often alter and, and disrupt the microbiota. So, we want to, you know, think about that when we're putting together our herbal prescription too. So I guess they're, they're two clinical keys that I think are really important to remember. They are important to remember. And um, I was just talking to a patient, autoimmune patient on the weekend about full resolution of any acute infection um, and understanding the importance of that for that. Because she's, you know, understandably so, there are people at the moment quite concerned about infections. 
and what that means for them with an autoimmune disease. And, and the take home from me for that is that we need full resolution of any type of infection. And so that means we don't just treat the symptoms. We treat you once your symptoms have gone until we get that full resolution. So I appreciate that. Great keys. Thank you. And finally, Kristen, just what other resources do you recommend for practitioners that, that just want to know more in this area? Yes. So I'm glad that you asked me this, Julianne, because this is something that I neglected to mention in the webinar. (laughs) So I think, you know, there's lots of good information online as well, just in regard to, you know, the general sort of autoimmune disease picture. You know, there's lots of good online resources and and diet diaries for elimination diets and that kind of thing. I think that the the Autoimmune Resource and Research Centre website has some good education and research on it and you know support for practitioners as well as patients like it it ties a few things together but i think for practitioner for herbal medicine practitioners that really want to get a good grasp on how to specifically target different types of infections optimal rx you know as a company we've released so many dvds and webinars and support materials and all sorts of educational resources that you can use to really get your head around and and get great references in regard to how to target bacterial infections, how to target viral infections, stealth, you know, fungal, parasitic infections, whether it's, you know, a stealthy or a mycoplasma, you know, infection. We've got really specific webinars and um, support materials as well as further information on chronic disease treatment and you know, the botanical management of autoimmune disorders as well. So if you hop on to the Optimal Rx website, once you've logged in as a practitioner, you can see our broader range, you know, a broad range of all this stuff. So if you want more detail, you can, you can really go into that because in the webinar, we're limited with time with what we can say. And we, you know, I already went over time. So (laughs) I did, you know, there's a few herbal medicines and a lot of keys and goals pulled out in there, but it's not as, in-depth or thorough as one of these other webinars would be if you wanted more info. Yeah, great. Because there is a massive library on there for people to have a look at um, and delve into. Chris, and I just want to say a big thank you from myself as a practitioner um, and as an educator, because I think, you know, obviously you know that I treat patients in this space and I'm grateful to be able to have this deep level of research given to me in a succinct manner that I can then communicate that through to my patients where relevant, or I can actually just make that my treatments more specific to what I'm looking at. And I really do appreciate it. And I know that this will be accepted well and widely in the practitioner community. So thank you for giving up your time today and talking to us about all things in uh, infectious triggers of autoimmunity. We appreciate it. We thank hope you to so have much. you back soon. You'll be on the other end of the camera soon, <laughs> the microphone soon with us. So happy listening, everybody, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Julianne. I really enjoyed my time. Thanks. Great.